This is Michael Easley in Context. All the things that pull our hearts, all the things that turn our heads, all the things that tug at our spiritual loins, all the things that cause us to doubt and to believe are nothing more and nothing less than little gods, little idols that are calling to you and promising you things they can never deliver. Believer in Jesus Christ, your God is one. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. If you're a news junkie like I am, it's interesting when religion finds its way into the media. We use a lot of terms. We talk about faith-based initiatives. We talk about many faiths. We talk about one nation under God. And so we have these bylines and idioms that we use to talk about Christianity in a very broad umbrella. In fact, we might use a quote mark, Christian close quote mark, when we use the word Christian, because there are so many groups that call themselves Christians, one has to wonder, well, what is a true believer? Do you have to belong to a certain denomination? Do you have to go to a certain church? Are there certain uh, rituals, ordinances? Are there religious things that go along with being, quote, a Christian, close quote? As you form your belief system, why you believe what you believe, uh, we all grew up with some experience. Whether we went to church or never went to church, uh, we create this picture of God. We create this picture of Christianity, maybe. And invariably, we're going to come to a discussion, whether it's in high school or college, with someone that says, well, all roads lead to God. Or you can be a Buddhist, you can be Hindu, you can be Muslim, you can be Christian, you can be Catholic, you can be Baptist, you can be as one of my professors used to say, a methobacterian, <laughs> are they all the same? As we continue thinking about why we believe what we believe, uh, today on the broadcast, we're going to introduce the doctrine of the Trinity. And now remember, these broadcasts were originally given to the Moody Bible Institute faculty, staff, and student body as we were rethinking our doctrinal statement, what the Institute believed, what it held to. And these were messages that I gave to remind us, if you will, this is the football, uh, to remind us this is why we believe and what we teach here at Moody. And of course, your church or your experience may be a little different doctrinally, but I invite you to think critically. So join us today on the broadcast as we continue thinking about why we believe what we believe. Last week, we began a series on doctrine that I've called Why We Believe What We Believe. Why we believe what we believe is not important. Why we believe what we believe is crucial. Uh, When you begin to think about theology and doctrine and systematic theology and biblical theology, it's sort of a strange notion. If you look at the average Bible, this one perhaps that can fit in our hand, it's uh, one volume, kind of small in all reality, and you weigh it against um, eight volumes of Chafer, uh, 22 volumes of Owen, uh, you know, just take any stack of systematic theology books and ask yourself, what's wrong here? We have all these words and all these pages and all this sort of verbosity to try to explain God. It's really quite comical if you think about it. Go to the library and look in the theological journals or the abstracts or the commentaries and look at the volumes that have been written and those that are coming out and those that will be written all trying to explain one book. 
It's quite delightful in one respect. It's quite maddening in another. Never seems like you can get your arms around it. How can you explain God? And the study of doctrine and dogma and theology is just that. It's trying to understand this collection, this corpus of material that teaches us what we would call a biblical theology. You might think of this as sort of theology in a vacuum. It's kind of boring, Michael. Why are we doing this? All your theology professors love me. The rest are bored to tears. But why you believe what you believe is crucial in many ways. For example, if you're part of a local church, that church has a statement of faith or a doctrinal statement. If you join a missions organization, they're going to have a doctrinal statement or a statement of faith. If you're part of a parachurch ministry, if you attend a local church or you align yourself with some group, they have a doctrinal statement, a statement of faith. This is what we believe, why we believe it, and therefore our practice should follow from this. Fifty years ago, perhaps, the issue was liberalism. It had horns on it. It looked evil. It came out of the dark German corners, and it attacked the Bible. It attacked the notion of inerrancy. It attacked that truth was God's truth. It became humanism run amok. And so that what we would call evangelical fundamental bowed up and rewrote their doctrinal statements to clarify issues that were being attacked. Because theology is seldom hammered out in a vacuum. It's almost always forged in a fight. So we think of our current context. A few years ago, a church that I served... Uh, we rewrote our statement of faith. Now, we didn't change any doctrine. We took out some fun language where it talked about the Bible being inerrant without admixture. Now, I like the word admixture. I had an admixture on my neck once. They cut it off because it was bad. What's admixture? So we cleaned up the language so that it communicated today without changing the basic theology of what we believed. But we added a paragraph. And the paragraph we added into our doctrinal statement was a statement on the family. Because we're in a context where the family is being attacked by gender issues, by civil issues, by legal issues, by equality issues. And we said, you know, we have to write theology in a context and we better put it in the statement that this church believes this about the family because that's what God's Word teaches about the family. So every context bears forth a statement. See what I'm getting at? The issues you are battling today may seem sort of passe because those are the current issues. There'll be new ones in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. There will always be new teachings fighting you. So your doctrinal statement is you come back to why we believe what we believe is crucial. Today I want to think about the Trinity with you a little bit. And one of the professors here very wisely asked me, Michael, do you think all the doctrines are the same in importance? And I said, well, yes and no. Because in certain contexts, some of those doctrines are going to mean more than they will in other contexts, right? Uh, we are not going to worry so much about certain issues that we do in different time spans. But when I first started laying this series out, and I said, the Trinity, eh, not that important. Then I started studying it and went, oh, it's pretty important. We need to remind ourselves why we hold to a Trinitarian Godhead. What difference does it make in practical theology? What difference does it make in the way I live as a believer in Christ? What difference does it make 
as I serve in a church. Some of you know the names Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Others know the name T.D. Jakes. Some may be aware of Gwen Shamblin, who started Way Down Workshops. Those are just three fairly recent names that have come under great scrutiny for their view of the doctrine of the Trinity and what they hold and teach and believe and whether that makes a difference or not in their music, in their teaching, or in their books that they sell. So you have to scratch your head and ask, is this a line that I draw in the sand and say because they're modalist or because they are oneness or Jesus only that I no longer fellowship with them? The way you make that decision is through a biblical theology of the Trinity. Modalism is simply that concept that looks as God as three modes, Father, Son, and Spirit. We might say the old illustration of water, liquid, ice, steam, or vapor. It's a very poor illustration because it reeks of modalities. One substance, three forms. Well, not really. But Jesus only, the oneness movements, and there's lots of iterations of these, but largely attributed to the Pentecostal oneness, Jesus only. So we're going to baptize someone. We're going to baptize them in Jesus' name only. Do you draw a line of fellowship there? Do you say, oh, I can't play ball with you anymore because you hold to a belief I don't hold to? And the way you weigh through these questions, of course, is a biblical theology. And we have the extremes like Jehovah's Witness, um, their tract society, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. They have printed a brochure called Reconciliation that says this, Never was there a more deceptive doctrine advance than that of the Trinity. It could have originated only in one mind, and that the mind of Satan the devil. So the watchtower is pretty clear what they think about the Trinity. There's no warm, fuzzy, tolerant language here. It's of the devil. The Universalist Church of America, Unitarians, have all discounted the doctrine of the Trinity, and we have. Are we splitting theological hairs? Does it make a difference? In the Moody doctrinal statement, one student proudly displayed the catalog as they came in. Good for them. Article 1 reads, God is a person who has revealed himself as a trinity in unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, and yet one God. And then our statement has three verses I want to unpack briefly. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the great Shema. You might turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Many of you have it memorized. Let's look at it again. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. In fact, read it with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Shema is the first word in the Hebrew text, listen or hear. In some of the fragments, the Targums, there's no capital and lowercase letters in Hebrew, but they make them very big, Shema. And the idea is, listen up. Pay attention, Israel. And you know the context very well. Uh, the failure at Kadesh Barnea, which was to be an 11-day journey, turns into a 40-year wandering. The majority report of the spies won the day, and the majority won, and the majority will spend 40 years dying in the wilderness. 
The land of Cana was right in front of them. Now they have to wait. And now this cusp of the land, the very word of God to his very servant Moses, no one talked to God like Moses. He speaks to Israel and says, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, three quick observations about what I call a confession of faith, a statement of faith. Why is this important? Why do we make a lot out of this little phrase, listen, Israel? Number one, it teaches monotheism. He alone is God. Some translate the last word from the Hebrew there, one in your English Bible, um, as unique. And that has some merit. The Lord your God is unique. But the idea of one hearkens to a more systematic theology. The only begotten Son, your God, is one. Why is it important to have a monotheistic God? I mean, after all, can't God be tolerant of all the little idols? Can't God just get along with all the wannabes? Well, number one, he is, of course, the only true God. But more importantly, when they're going into a polytheistic culture rife with idolatry, rife with all the Canaanite sexualized gods and activities that are going to pull them away from the one true Yahweh Elohim, he's trying to say, listen to me. When you go into that land, there are going to be many voices calling your heart away from me, but you have one God. You have one God, not many. Now, if you study the Egyptian history or Greek mythology, you know that polytheism is really a lot of fun to study because seldom do they get along. In fact, a polytheistic culture is always in competition and in consort one with another to get their own agenda or to manipulate mankind, and you're never quite sure if that God's going to be your friend or foe on a given day. And that was the case with the Canaanite rituals as well as Greek and Egyptian gods. They're capricious. They're self-serving. They can do stuff at their whim. Israel, our God, is one. What an easy application for you and me. All the things that pull our hearts, all the things that turn our heads, all the things that tug at our spiritual loins, all the things that cause us to doubt and to believe, are nothing more and nothing less than little gods, little idols that are calling to you and promising you things they can never deliver. Believer in Jesus Christ, your God is one. And he's good. And he's loving. Secondly, he's personal. Note, Israel, our God. Don't miss it. It's so obvious we miss it. Why is it important that he is our God? Why is it important that he's personal, he's available to us? He's not hiding at bay, waiting for some whimsical sacrifice of a certain number of fruits and vegetables and animal fat in a certain way, and then he'll say, okay, now we can be friends. He shows us a sacrificial system to show the breakdown between sin and holiness, but his goal is always to love his own to care for his own, to protect his own, to give his own good things, to bring them into the promised land. He is our God. Why is that important? Because he created you men and women for fellowship. He did not create you to be subservient serfs who worked in a field and threw fruit into a fire. He made you to relate to you. He wants to be your father. We have one God, he's our God, and thirdly, he is plural. Now stay with me just a moment. 
I use the word plural with quotations, open and closed quotations around the word plural. The word Elohim, the I-M ending, is plural, generally speaking, in Hebrew. We say goyim, referring to the nations. Of course, you know the word El, Beth El, the house of God, right? Elohim, the I-M ending, indicates a plural nature. Now, some say, well, that means because he's big and vast and large. Possibly. I think there's a telling hand here of a Trinitarian Godhead. He's one, but he's many. He's one, but he's three. And we get the first tip of this. Now, we can go back in time a little bit to Genesis 1. In fact, turn there if you would. Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. And you'll see this plural language used in a different way, but with the same point. You all know these verses. I'm not showing you anything new. This is a reminder. This is a refresher of why we believe what we believe about the Trinity. Look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us, there it is, first person plural pronoun, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Who's he talking to? Is God schizophrenic here? Like the t-shirt that said, I used to be schizophrenic, but now we're okay? No. There is a Trinitarian dialogue going on at the beginning of time and creation. Let us make man in our image, in the image of God. By the way, man is the only image bearer. Animals do not bear God's image. Creation does not bear God's image in the same kind and way that man does. I've shared with you before, I have a sanctified picture in my mind of Jesus Christ on his hand and knee with Adam, forming Adam, the perfect sand man, if you will, ever made. And when he's finally finished with this, what would make, what would make a, a Michelangelo David look like child's play, he breathes life into it. Jesus made a man in his image, the text says. Continue, look at the verse again. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we have the great Shema. The great Shema tells us at least three things. He is monotheistic. There's one God. Personal. Secondly, he's personal. He's our God. He wants a relationship with us. And thirdly, he's plural in the sense that there is a tip of the hand of the Trinitarian doctrine that God is the Son and the Spirit right from the beginning. Well, that's the great Shema. Now, our doctrinal statement also uses the second passage, the Great Commission passage, uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Flip over there to your New Testament to Matthew 28. Look again at a very familiar verse. Perhaps you've not looked at it in this way before. First book of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Why don't you read with me? Whatever your version is, read it well. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We talk a lot about the Great Commission. We tongue-in-cheek talk about the Great Omission. 
And let's look at it for a moment. Now, you all know the imperative verb is not go. Many missions conferences, go is the first big giant word on the banner during missions week. And that's okay. <laughs> one of my former professors says he's going to write a book one day called Misapplied Verses God Has Greatly Blessed. So there you have it. <clears throat> The primary verbal force here is make disciples, and you all know this. Some look at go, baptize, and teach as the participial forms that modify make disciples. If that's true, make disciples as you go and baptize and teach them. Let's talk about making disciples for just a moment. We often compartmentalize evangelism and discipleship, and there's some good discussion for that, good dialogue for that. I think in Jesus' mouth right now, it's one and the same. To make a disciple is to help someone come to faith in Christ and to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I think he says one and the same. Make a disciple. Make a follower of mine. And you do it with three things. You go. You have to take the message to them. You baptize them and you teach them. Baptism is, of course, a fascinating subject for a many-part series um, whenever you talk about this. But let's look at it for just a moment here. The purpose we're thinking about is this Trinitarian doctrine with identification. There are three distinct persons mentioned in the passage. Look at the verse again. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some observations. There's unity and plurality here. The name, the word name, is singular. It's the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there's some unity and connection here. The Father, we often observe, sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit indwells the believer in Jesus Christ to give him her relationship with the Son, with the Father. So we see this sort of complete Trinitarian doctrine unfolding. Every time I go back to the Great Commission, you, we've all heard the expression, the Great Commission is the great omission for most of us. Uh, we call it the Great Commission because these were Christ's last word to his disciples. So we say his last words maybe ought to be our first importance. Now, what Christ is doing here in this Great Commission, as we call it, and it rounds out the doctrine of the Trinity in our thinking, is that God is one. Now, of course, we're never going to resolve this entirely in our brains. We can't figure out how there's a Trinitarian doctrine three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet one God. But that's also part of doing theology, if you will. What Scripture teaches, we have to align ourselves with, not just our opinion about something. Again, this whole series about why you, why I believe what we believe is critical because we draw conclusions about these things. When it comes to matters of doctrine and faith and belief, I want you to know for sure why you believe what you believe. And the personal work of Christ is the central hope. It's the key to Scripture, that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, and he came back from the dead. And that any and all who trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised a free gift of eternal life. Perhaps you haven't heard in a while, but God loves you. It doesn't matter your situation in life. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you may feel, shame or guilt. He loves you. He loves you so much that Christ died in your place on your behalf instead of you. And there's nothing more important in life. There's no greater decision in life than coming to terms with knowing him. You know, you could pray a prayer as simple as this. It's not praying a prayer to me or to some person. It's praying a prayer to God. 
that you just acknowledge, Father, I am a sinner. I realize maybe for the first time that I'm in desperate need, that you love me, that Christ died for me in my place instead of me on my behalf. He was so good to do for me what I could never do for myself. I put my faith in you. I trust you. I believe in you. And by that faith, you promised me a gift called eternal life. If you've prayed that prayer, and maybe it's the first time you've ever come to that acknowledgement, we would love to hear from you. And you can reach us simply, michael at michaelincontext.com. michael at michaelincontext.com. We'd love to hear from you. And join us tomorrow on In Context as we continue thinking about the Trinity, this doctrine of one in three. This is Michael Easley, In Context.